It's great to be here today together to worship our faithful God. Some words from the letter to the Hebrews from chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith, our ancestors received approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds that were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. And yet all these, our ancestors, though they were commended by their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better, so that they would not, apart from us, be made perfect. And now let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. Wonderful God, we pause amidst the busyness of life to centre our thoughts on you. We still the whirling thoughts that fill our minds, making space to hear your voice. In the stillness, we open ourselves to you. As we quieten ourselves, as we let thoughts slip from our minds, we discover that the gap between earth and heaven is as narrow as our own breathing. In the stillness of this moment, draw near to us again. Refresh us with new indwelling of your spirit. Make us live as we have forgotten how to live. Wonderful God, Closer than our breathing, we pause in awe before you. Gentle God, we find it hard to be still for more than a few moments. Despite our best efforts, everyday thoughts crowd the still centre we have made. Worries and perplexities of daily life. Questions and doubts on complex topics. Temptations that beguile for good or ill. Opportunities missed. Gentle God, as these thoughts resurface, as we're reminded of our own limitation and brokenness, we ask for your healing and cleansing touch to restore, renew and refresh us. We reach out in faith towards you. Wonderful, gentle God, source of our being, goal of our living, may all we say and do and think this hour be worthy of you. May we listen carefully for your voice and be sensitive to your touch. For we offer our prayers and ourselves, in Christ's name. Amen. First readings from Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, reading verses 14 to 30. 
which is page 58, if you're following the church Bible. When they joined the rest of the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some teachers of the law arguing with them. When the people saw Jesus, they were greatly surprised and ran to him and greeted him. Jesus asked his disciples, What are you arguing about? What are you arguing with them about? A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son to you because he has an evil spirit in him and cannot talk. Whenever the spirit attacks him, it throws him to the ground and he foams at the mouth, grits his teeth and becomes stiff all over. I asked your disciples to drive the spirit out, but they could not. Jesus said to them, How unbelieving you people are. How long must I stay with you? How long do I have to put up with you? Bring the boy to me. They brought him to Jesus. As soon as the spirit saw Jesus, it threw the boy into a fit, so that he fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has he been like this? Jesus asked the father. Ever since he was a child, he replied. Many times the evil spirit has tried to kill him by throwing him in the fire and into water. Have pity on us and help us if you possibly can. Yes, said Jesus, if you yourself can, everything is possible for the person who has faith. The father at once cried out, I do have faith, but not enough. Help me to have more. Jesus noticed that the crowd was closing in on them, so he gave a command to the evil spirit. Deaf and dumb spirit, he said, I order you to come out of the boy and never go into him again. The spirit screamed, threw the boy into a bad fit and came out. The boy looked like a corpse, but everyone said, He is dead, and everyone said, He is dead. Jesus took the boy by the hand and helped him to rise, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive the spirit out? Only prayer can drive this kind out, answered Jesus. Nothing else can. Jesus and his disciples left that place and went on through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where he was. The second reading is from 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 to 9. For it is not ourselves that we preach. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The God who said, out of darkness the light shall shine, is the name is the same God who made this light shine in our hearts to bring us the knowledge of God's glory shining in the face of Christ. Yet we who have the spiritual treasure are like common clay pots in order to show that the supreme, God, the supreme power belongs to God, not to us. We are often troubled but not crushed, sometimes in doubt but never in despair. There are many enemies but we are never without a friend. And though badly hurt at times, we are not destroyed. Amen. I wonder if we can imagine ourselves into that story that we just heard read from Mark's Gospel. Jesus, along with three of the disciples, Peter, James and John, have just been away up the mountain for some time, quite possibly overnight. Overnight. 
Certainly Luke, in his gospel, suggests they were away overnight. For those three disciples, there has been an amazing, literally, mountaintop experience as they witnessed Jesus' transfiguration. For the other nine, back down at ground level, it's been a very different story. A large crowd has gathered around them, including some religious teachers whose voices can be heard raised in argument. When Jesus arrives on the scene, he hears what is happening, and the poor disciples are abandoned as the crowd spots him, and off they go to see Jesus. And out of that crowd, one man steps forward and speaks up. Try to imagine how that man must have felt. He's brought his son to the nine disciples in the hope that they will be able to cure him, that the demon will be cast from him or the spirit will be cast from him. How must it have felt for that man to have his hopes dashed yet again? Because in the story, we discover that this son has been afflicted by this condition since childhood. I wonder how many times his parents have prayed for him to be cured. I wonder how many times they've taken him to an exorcist or a healer in the hope that this one finally would be able to free their son I wonder how many times they've had to endure the questioning looks and snide remarks about other people, that it's their sin or his sin that has caused this, that it's their lack of faith that maybe means their prayers have not been heard. It seems quite clear that this man loves his son and has devoted his whole life to seeking a cure, and yet nothing changes. You see, I think it's perhaps not so unreasonable that when he comes to Jesus, he says, if you're able, please will you help us? This is a man whose hopes have been dashed time and time again. And we're looking at this from the far side of Calvary. He wasn't. He had come to Jesus hoping but not knowing that Jesus could make a difference. Over recent years, there seems to have been a fashion to have Jesus responding in a kind of exasperation. If you're able! You know, it's kind of, this Jesus is really cross at this point. Well, I don't know. But it's kind of a, what do you know, who do you think I am? Of course I can do it. I don't know whether that is actually how Jesus said it, because it doesn't say Jesus said it in such and such a voice. It's the only time, as far as I can tell, there are people who know the Gospels far better than me here, but as far as I can tell, it's the only time that somebody comes to Jesus and seems to be rebuked for their lack of faith. The only time we hear of somebody coming and saying, if. But there's a kind of honesty in that, I'd like to suggest, that the man came with an if. And I wonder how he felt when Jesus responded as he did, whether he shouted it or whether he said it quietly. 
He's come all this way to Jesus, to the disciples, hoping that his son can be healed. And now he's told off for not believing. How many times has he believed? How many times has he thought that this person or this prayer or this sacrifice would be the one that finally made the difference? And how many times has he been disappointed? Isn't it actually quite reasonable that he comes to Jesus and says, if you can do this? I love his response to Jesus, and it's as poignant as it is honest. I believe. Help my unbelief. Or as the Good News translation puts it, I have faith, but not enough. Help me to have more. That the boy is healed or is released from his condition is clearly not dependent on the quantity or the quality of the man's faith. Very often this story is used in an unhelpful way to say, you know, if you had enough faith that this would happen. But actually the man said, you know, my faith's not great. I've only got a little bit of faith. I imagine this man's faith has been weakened by the disappointments he's experienced over the years. I imagine that his faith has been sorely tried. Real life, the real life that we know, in all its brokenness and bewilderment, has shown him that it's not so simple. Bad things happen to good people, or at least to people who are just trying to get on with their lives. I don't know if you have been following the news Uh, It struck me that this week it's actually Kate McCann's book about the disappearance of her daughter Madeleine is just being published. It's kind of of interest to me and the guys over the way at the atrium because we both lived in Leicestershire at the time that that happened. Now, whatever happened that night, and we may never know, and whatever the rights or wrongs of that, a child went missing and her parents' devout Catholic faith was and still is, tested. In the online version of Christianity Today, uh, Kate McCann was interviewed, and and it talks about her here. This is just a short quote from Christianity Today. The 43-year-old devout Catholic admits to feeling like God had abandoned her and wondering why prayers for her daughter's return seem to have gone unanswered. I'm often asked, Has your faith been tested? Do you get angry with God? There have been many times when I've felt God has deserted me or has let Madeleine down. I've occasionally doubted his existence altogether. It then goes on to say how she retains her faith in God. Now, I would imagine we are all quite sympathetic to what Kate McCann says there. It's a very extreme experience, which quite clearly has the potential to test and potentially even destroy faith in God. There aren't any easy answers as to why 
the um, the responses that that couple seek are not forthcoming, why their prayers seem to be going unanswered. No easy way of explaining God's seeming silence. And yet they still trust in God. That's a very extreme situation, and not every situation is so extreme. Not every source of doubt or questioning has its origins in tragedy. All of us, if we're honest, sometimes have questions and doubts. And sometimes it seems that God is silent. The second letter to the church at Corinth includes this beautiful and rather poignant metaphor of faith in Christ as treasure contained in clay pots. I remember when we were studying this at college, our biblical studies tutor said the clay pots were like the takeaway cups you get from Starbucks of their day. This treasure was put in a takeaway cup, a cardboard cup, that you use and you throw away. That's part of the mystery of what God does. But there was something a bit more that I found intriguing with the Good News translation as it went on to talk about the struggles that the apostles faced. don't know if you caught it all, but it said, we are often troubled. We are sometimes in doubt. We have many enemies and at times are badly hurt. What struck me especially, giving the theme of this week's service, was the phrase, sometimes in doubt. I wondered what it was that they doubted and what caused those doubts. Nobody tells us. And I'd never spotted this phrase before, so I was curious and I had a look to see what some other Bible translations say. The contemporary English version translates it as, even when we do not know what to do. And similarly, the message says, sometimes we're not sure what to do. The NRSV, the uh, Theological College Approved Translation, The NIV, the Evangelical Church Approved Translation, and the KJV, the Old Fashioned Evangelical Church Approved Translation, say perplexed. So doubt, don't know what to do, and perplexed. I was left a bit perplexed as to why this same word could be translated in so many different ways. Bewilderment and uncertainty. It seems that even somebody as strong in their faith as Paul had his moments at least of questioning and possibly of doubt. One of the things that constantly fascinates me, because that's the kind of girl I am, is why biblical translators make the choices that they do. I guess it's more Andrew's field, really, than mine. Andrew's the the hermeneutics person. But I decided to have a bit more of a dig and discover why this word doubt was used in the Good News Bible and why other Bibles might use different things. And I kind of went off on a bit of a sidetrack, which is most of what you've got on your bit of paper, which you don't need to look at just now, about words translated as doubt in the Bible. 
The word used in 2 Corinthians, this is a bit of a Greek lesson coming up, is aporeo, which literally translates as to be without means, to hesitate, or to be in doubt and perplexity. And it seems that linking of doubt and perplexity is helpful in getting a sense of what it was those people experienced. They were bewildered, they were confused, they had questions going on. Rather than just saying, I don't think so, or I don't believe it, it seems to me to suggest that they were actively wrestling with what it was that they struggled to understand or accept. I'd like to suggest that rather than being the opposite of faith, doubt can be understood as an earnest and honest engagement with tricky ideas. There is, I'd like to suggest, a kind of healthy uncertainty that accepts that it just might be necessary to rethink sometimes. There's a danger, isn't there, for all of us, that what we were taught at 20, those of us who are past 20, we still think at 40, 60, 80. We've never gone back and re-evaluated it. We've just kind of got stuck. But maybe if doubt is an active questioning and active engaging, then it's a more helpful word. So we have sometimes in doubt, but never in despair. Or as the CEV puts it, we don't know what to do, but we never give up. There is something active about a healthy kind of doubt. Now, because I'm a really sad person, I did a bit more digging and I discovered there are at least five Greek words that can be translated as doubt. There may be more, I don't know. But if you want to find a bit more about them, they're all on that sheet. You can look them up. And I was just fascinated how different translations and different places use different uh, English words to express the Greek words. The one that's used most frequently is diakrinomenos. Diakrinomenos. That's a nice mouthful, isn't it? Dia meaning through, as in diameter. And krinomenos meaning judgment. Sounds a bit like criminal. I don't know whether criminal comes from that or not. Uh, My Greek is too bad. But that is translated in the Bible sometimes as to hesitate, to judge, to discern, to estimate, or to doubt. There's uh, some other words, diaporeo and aporeo, which both have the same root, which means through perplexity. And then the, the last, the least frequently used words are distazo, which means duplication, and dialogismos, which means through reckoning. I'm just showing off so I can sort of kind of half say Greek words, really. But actually, if we looked at those words and looked at their literal Greek meanings or their origins and the way they are used throughout the New Testament, what we begin to see is it's not always negative. It's actually a very positive word. When the, uh, the teaching is given by Paul in Corinthians on distinguishing between spirits, the word he uses is one of the words that can translate as doubt. So it's, there's a sense of engaging seriously, using your mind, trying to understand, avoiding rash decisions. And perhaps where it's portrayed negatively, it's not the questioning attitude that's criticised, but the tendency to prevaricate, 
to overanalyze, to swing from one view to another, or even, and this is the one I'm guilty of, to sit on the fence, never quite make your mind up. So in thinking about doubt, here are some thoughts I think it's helpful for us all to remember. Everybody here sometimes doubts things. And anybody in here who tells me they never doubt anything, well, go and have a good look at your own self because I think you'll probably find you do. Doubt can be healthy if we understand it as about being discerning, about being cautious, about actively engaging with ideas. But it can also be unhealthy if it leads us to get stuck overanalyzing things or perhaps more so just saying, I'm not even going to think about it. I'm not going to engage with that. So much for doubt, but what about faith? As far as I can discover, the New Testament uses only one word for faith. So you'll be glad that I'm not going to give you a Greek lesson on words that can be translated faith. But it's a word we often use without really thinking all that much about what it means. We just kind of think it's obvious what faith means. But is it? I did a bit of research again this week. I've been on a bit of a theological kick at the moment, having been away from it for a while. And one of the traditional Christian ways of understanding faith is that it's kind of three stages that build on each other, or at least are interconnected. The first aspect or stage of faith is knowledge. You gather information about something and you weigh it up. The second stage or aspect is acceptance or assent. You've got the information and you've thought about it and you think, yeah, that that seems reasonable. And you accept it. If we were to put it in 21st century evangelistic language in terms of Christian faith, that would be the point where a person makes a decision for Christ. And then the third aspect is commitment or loyalty. Having accepted the claims as true, you need to live in the light of them. And I think that's something about discipleship. Certainly a key part of faith lived out as a community of believers and committed to each other and to Christ. Now, that's all very nice and fine and dandy, but I think it's a very human understanding. You know, you learn about something, you decide you believe it, and you live in consequences. That all says it comes from us. But there is another understanding of faith, traditionally, that it is a gift from God. That it's a mystery that emerges from a direct encounter with God. Certainly, there are people who've never done all the thinking and never done all the weighing up, who have a lively, active faith. I have a suspicion there's a bit of both going on there. That as God's Holy Spirit blows where it will, it stirs our hearts and our minds towards faith. I did actually copy out one quotation on these sheets for you, and Lily even knows the person who wrote the quotation, so that makes it Clearly a good quotation to have had. Christian faith involves an assertion of truth of what is believed, 
the faith. A personal experience of that truth, trusting God. A kind of loving that shows from it, faith in action. And a constancy of approach, faithfulness. Now that might sound all very highfalutin. What a person is really saying is that faith is not just about believing the right things or what somebody tells you are the right things. Faith is a way of living that affects our attitudes first to God, then to each other, and then to the whole of God's creation. Implicit in that is this sense of sticking together, of being loyal, even during times of trial and testing and confusion and hesitation and disagreement. And we'll have all of those in our life together. I don't think such an understanding of faith excludes the possibility for honest doubt. So long as those doubts are active engagement rather than just a passive acceptance. The big challenge for those of us who profess faith in Jesus is to live out our faith daily. We will sometimes have questions and doubts and trials, but that's okay because it shows that we are actively engaged with what it means to live as disciples. We don't think it's all sewn up and there's no more thinking to do. A man came to Jesus with a son who couldn't speak or hear, who experienced convulsions that put his life in danger. Maybe in our understanding we would say he had epilepsy or something similar. We don't know. This man longed for his son to be healed. And, you know, he wasn't so different from any of us. Wouldn't we long for healing for our child in that situation? And what he did seems to me to model for all time an approach to Jesus that is honest and open to transformation. I believe, help my unbelief. Perhaps that's a good prayer for each one of us to offer as we seek to follow Jesus in a world that is complicated and confusing. And now we bring our prayers for others. Let us pray together. Faithful God, sometimes when we look around us at a world battered and bruised by natural disaster and human sinfulness, we find it hard to believe that things can ever be better. We are perplexed. We do hesitate, and if we're honest, often find it easier to analyse than to act, or to ignore than to investigate. We believe that you are a God for whom nothing consistent with your character is impossible. A God who loves with an unending love all that you have made, and yet mysteriously allow freedom to your creation freedom that has consequences both for good and for ill we believe you are a God who hears our prayers even before we are able to articulate them 
and who is not slow to answer, even though sometimes we feel we wait in vain for your response. As we come to you now with our prayers for others, help us to do so in trust and in hope, as well as honestly acknowledging our fears and our doubts. We begin close to home, praying for those in our midst who face challenges and struggles at this time, for whom life is perplexing and hope may seem to be in short supply. We pray for those who are unwell, for those for whom advancing years mean a loss of independence, for those who wait anxiously. In the quiet of our hearts, we name those known to us, asking that your love will surround them and your hands uphold them in their times of anxiety and concern. We pray for all who are in the midst of the exam season or who are writing up projects or dissertations, that they will find clarity of thought in their work and that they will trust in the work they've done rather than fearing what they have not done. We pray for all our students, those who are and those who soon will be travelling home, whether that is for holidays or moving on permanently, that they will know your presence and guidance always. From the tiniest baby to the oldest adult, you know us more intimately than we know ourselves. So in the stillness, we open ourselves afresh to your touch, bringing our prayers for ourselves to you. We pray for our city and our nation. It saddens us to hear of violence and sectarianism bringing fear to people who share this beautiful land. We pray for those whose work is to maintain law and order and to promote harmony. It rightly disturbs us when we hear of poverty on our doorstep, of immigrants facing abuse or injustice of families torn apart by the effects of addiction, whether that is to drugs or to sport or even to employment. There are so many complex situations that we can tie ourselves in knots trying to understand them, never mind transform them. Sometimes we doubt anything will change. Yet still we dare to pray that you will bring new hope and new life. We pray for our world. How quickly one situation falls from the news reports and another takes its place. How frequently we hear of natural disaster claiming the lives of innocent bystanders and find ourselves forced to reevaluate our own priorities.
today especially. We pray for people in Spain whose lives have been shaken by an earthquake and who now live with fear and uncertainty. And even as we pray for them, we recall that in Japan and New Zealand, people are still in the very early stages of rebuilding lives after the earthquakes there. Please give courage and wisdom to all involved in rescue and reconstruction work as they seek to bring hope to those affected. We pray for nations whose names appear frequently on our news programs, for Libya, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and for those that have already slipped to obscurity, Iraq, Uganda, DR Congo. And now, in the silence, or out loud, we say the names of nations for which we are concerned trusting you to hear and to answer our prayers. Faithful God, when we list so many prayers, it's hard for us to grasp your ability to hear and to respond. Forgive us our unbelief. Faithful God, sometimes we feel we have prayed so many times and nothing has happened. Forgive our unbelief. Faithful God, help us to trust that it's not the quantity nor yet the quality of our prayers, but the abundance of your love that matters. And so help us to offer them hopefully and honestly. In the name of Christ. Amen. Loving God, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Send us from here to continue to wrestle with those things that challenge us. To live as Christ's disciples. To bring and to be good news to those around us. And may we know your spirit's comfort ever with us, today and every day.